Are you glad you're in church this morning? Man, I'm glad. You sound awesome. It's just, it's something to just worship together, isn't it? Just powerful. Just, it's the testimony of the person around you. You don't know what week they have, but you just know that they're singing and I'm singing and we're agreeing together that Jesus is king and not, nothing comes against me. Not, none of the things that are against me right now are the king. Jesus is king. That, that testimony is amazing and powerful. And so uh, I just love coming together and I love worshiping with you. There's something about it. That's why it's so important to gather together. Uh, that's another topic for another day. Uh, you, ever play, you ever play the game, Would You Rather? No, yeah, yeah, you can talk. Don't, don't, don't stop this engagement. Yeah, we ever play Would You Rather? It's the, it's the great dilemma game. Uh, maybe it's just popular with the kids these days. I don't know. But the, would you rather, where you basically, you're, you're given a dilemma. You're given two options and you just, you have to choose. You, you can't say, I'd rather do neither. You, the, the game is you have to think through, which would I want to do more, this or that, option A or option B. And generally we don't, you, you don't play the game with like good options. Like, would you rather a jet ski or a four wheeler? Like you, you, you play with, with, with bad options, like things that I wouldn't want either of those things. It's a dilemma game. Like, for instance, here, here's one. Would you rather have a, a head the size of a watermelon or a head the size of a tennis ball? Think about it. <laughs> don't, don't choose wisely. Just, anyway, would you, here's one. Would you rather have fingers as long as your legs or legs as long as your fingers? <laughs> choose wisely, right? Like, I don't know. Here, this one, this one we could talk about all day and I don't have time for it, but man, when you get playing out these scenarios, would you rather in your life only be able to yell or only be able to whisper? Those are your options. Can you imagine like not being able to control the volume of your voice? <laughs> Think about it though. Don't, don't jump to conclusion. Like, like if, if you can only yell, what happens if like you're hiding for your life? <laughs> like, are you okay, friend? Yep. Like, I'm, or, or what happens on the other hand, if you can only whisper, what happens if like you're drowning? Help, right? Like you don't want, anyway, would you rather is a game and it's fun. And if you're ever driving in a car, it's fun to just play that game out and, and get into good, big lofty arguments as to why your option is better than the other one. Uh, but I think the reason we get a kick out of would you rather is because that's life, isn't it? Life is actually this series of events where we, we often find ourselves presented with dilemmas in which we don't really know which option to land on, neither seem ideal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like how often life, from the minuscule and the mundane to like the, the just the, the big things in life, we often aren't presented with nice, clean, clear-cut, black and white, tidy line issues in life, are we? In fact, if you've lived life at all and lived long enough, you've found that, you know, there's a lot of gray areas in life and there's a lot of times where I really don't know what the best answer is. There are no good answers. Like from, from, from everything from car repair to great life choices, sometimes we just don't know what the best answer is. Like, like last week, I had an option. I, I had two things I had to deal with and I was only gonna be able to deal with one. I had a bad bearing in our, in our little black car that, that was almost undrivable and then our SUV, the MVI is up. So I'm, I'm, I'm rolling the dice. Do I drive illegally? Don't judge me. <laughs> for another couple weeks and not like going, no one likes the MVI. It's like waiting for test results on like a CAT scan. Like you're, you're just, you don't like that. Or do I get the car fixed? Like we get these dilemmas and these choices we have to make in life. And I, th I think that's why we like the game. Would you rather? Because we are, we, we're familiar with that feeling 
of being torn and caught between two opposing realities or between two options that you really don't know where to, to, to land. We live in the middle of a world of, of extremes and, and, and polarizing uh, options. And, and so today I want to talk about just what it looks like as a Christian because what I've found is not just in life, but especially as a believer, I find myself in these dilemmas more often than not. Anybody know what I'm talking about as a believer? Like, okay, in life, you're, you're caught with these choices you have to make and you try to make the best choices. But I've found as I've endeavored to follow Jesus and the more I follow Jesus and the longer I follow Jesus, I've found that these dilemmas of, I don't know if this is the good answer or this is the good answer. I, I find these come up a lot, do you? I find following Jesus isn't actually just that simple. It's not as easy as, well, we're this type of person and we do these types of things, or this is black and this is white, this is in and this is out, this is right and this is wrong. I, I find actually there's a whole lot of jumbled gray in, in following Jesus. And so I want to talk today about what that looks like as we continue our series, Code of Kings. I want to, I want to talk about navigating as a believer the, the, great, uh, the, the great kind of dilemmas we find ourselves in. Like, what's the balance between grace and truth? What's the balance between faith and works? How do we navigate these dilemmas we find ourselves in? If you're just joining us today, we've been now three weeks in a series called Code of Kings. And Code of Kings is essentially, we're, we're, we're trying to unlock and, and refine and, and drive deeper our values as a church. I believe something to be true is that your values shape your culture. So the, so the values you have in your life are actually what's bringing shape to how you live your life. The values you have in your household are what brings shape to the culture of your household. The values you have in your business or your organization are what shape the culture you have. And the values we have at a church are what shape the culture we have as a church. And I felt like this is a, a significant time in our church life as we've been growing to kind of nail down who are we what are we all about? Where are we going? What is base and what is core? Because just like as you're building a skyscraper, how many of you know if you have a, a large building, the higher the building goes, the deeper the foundation needs to be? And so that's what we're doing with this 10-week series is we're just driving our foundation deep. And we're saying this is who we are. And so we're now three weeks in. And the first week we talked about at the, at the beginning of the day, we are a church that are, we are about the one thing. We are about Jesus and his glory. We live for king and kingdom. Then last week we talked about in this whole thing, our whole existence is based on the authority of God's word. And now here we come to week three. And what week three is, and this is kind of like a reality check, that if, 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 if code one and code two are in place, you should be coming to this place where you are going to have to make a decision. And here, here's the code. Code three is this. And we've been using these little word plays decidedly different. We are a people who are decidedly different. We, we make a decision to be different. Here, here's what I mean by that. Here's our, our statement of truth. We wholeheartedly embrace the culture of heaven and we fully expect our lives to reflect this kingdom reality. We are decidedly different. We wholeheartedly embrace the culture of heaven and we fully expect our lives to reflect this kingdom reality. This means that we expect as being Christians, that, that being Christians and following Jesus is going to have an effect on the how we live our lives. Amen? We actually believe as a church that we are going to be a little bit different than, than anything you're going to find in the world. We're a different type of person. We're okay with being a little weird. 
And you know what, as, as a church, we value, like if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, one of the reasons we, we try to talk normal and dress normal, we don't want to b- build big barriers between uh, the truth we believe and, and you finding it. We, we want you to find that. And so that we do everything we can to kind of pull down barriers, but there are things about us that are just going to be a little weird and we can't change that. We are people who raise our hands in worship and we say we surrender to Jesus. We're people that we sing loud. I find singing together is just a little weird. You ever think about it that way? Like, like you don't, you don't, we don't sing five songs before the Sea Dogs game. Like, <laughs> sing it again. We don't, we don't do that. Like, that's just only, it's only in church. Like, there are some things about us that are just culturally strange. They're unique to us. We are decidedly different. And so I want to talk for just a minute about, okay, how do you navigate this world? Because that's where the rubber meets the road in your life, isn't it? That's where the rubber meets the road in my life. What does it look like for me to follow Jesus in the here and now? That's the great question because this is an active faith. We've seen uh, 20, over 21 people in the last two weeks accept Jesus as Savior. And what we believe is that's not the end, that's the beginning. That's the start of the journey. And now you're on a path and you're on a track and you are following Jesus. This is an active faith. This isn't some philosophy you ascribe to and then that's it, one and done. It's you put your faith in Jesus and you walk it out. And so I want to look at what does it look like to be different, to be decidedly different? What does it look like to walk out your faith and follow Jesus? And so I want to, to do that, I want to look at this text in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is one of my favorite Bible sections in the whole, the whole scripture. We're going to memorize this week. Anybody memorize uh, Isaiah 40 verse 8 last week? I saw a bunch of people did. That was awesome. But this week we're going to do 1 Peter 2 verse 9. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. We're going we're to memorize that. And I want to look at this text today. And I want to ask the question, what does it look like? To follow Jesus? What does it look like to live a life of faith in the here and now? And the reason I'm looking at this text is because that's the answer, and that's the question, sorry, that Peter himself was trying to answer when he wrote this. Now, who is Peter? Peter is the actual guy. If you read the Gospels, this is that Peter. He is the, the first apostle. He's the guy who, who followed Jesus. He was the fisherman and followed Jesus. He's the guy who was super zealous, and he had some rough times where he hit some walls and some gears grinded. He had some ups and downs in his story. I'm thankful that, that God chose Peter and not me to be the guy that he records what not to do, right? Like, that's, that's Peter's story. Like, Peter's our, Peter's our example of how amazing grace is. That's, that's what that is about. But Peter's story is an amazing thing where he becomes this great apostle. And you see this massive transformation in his life by the grace of God. And now, about 30 years after Jesus has died, it's A.D. 60 62. He writes this letter of instruction. There are two of them, but he writes this letter of instruction to this new church, this church establishing in what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, again, put yourself there. These are real, real Christians, and they're trying to figure out the same question you are. What does it look like for me to live my life following Jesus in the here and now? How do I do business? How do I vote? How do I walk this out? How do, how do I, what conversations do I have? What relationships do I build? How do I do this? this these are real people asking real questions in a real time. And so this is the backdrop in which Peter writes to them these instructions and he gives them some some understanding of what it looks like to be the saved, to be people of God. He says this in verse nine. But you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. This is who you are. A holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Watch this in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So right here, let's just pause here for a second. Just Let's just stop here. And I want to I I just dissect this. Is, are we okay to just jump into the Bible a little deep this morning? Good. So... What is Peter getting at? And I think the first thing he's getting at here, and I think I have, I have a few observations as to what it looks like to follow Jesus, but I think the first thing he's getting at, and he's, talk, he's hitting in on the great dilemma of following Jesus, and that is this. Who are we? Who are we? Where do, who, who are we as a people? What does it mean to be a Christian? Who are we? Because these are the great dilemmas that if you follow Jesus any time in your life, you have felt the tension here, I, I, I assure you. What happens in religious circles and, and Christian circles even are, are one of two extremes. This dilemma forms. On, on the right hand, there, there is this propensity in all of us to withdraw from culture, from the world. As Christians, there is this, this thing inside of us that says, well, we know we're not of the world. We know we're not like them. So what we're going to do is we're going to withdraw from the world. We're going to build up walls. We're going to raise the moral standard. We're going to dress different, and we're going to talk different. We're going to act different, and we're going to make sure the world knows that we're not them. And there is a propensity in Christians to actually withdraw from the world in which we live. This is the sectarian view. Now, sectarian sounds a lot more intense than, than, than what you think it is. Now, I'm not just talking about like the, these crazy like right-wing groups, like was it, was it Westboro Baptist Church. I'm not just talking about that. The sectarian view is shared by a multitude of Christian denominations and upbringings. A, a whole bunch of them. My tradition that I grew up in had shades of sectarianism. The holiness movement where we dress a certain way. Women, you can't wear earrings. Women, we don't want to see those ankles. A man might stumble. This is, you think I'm joking is the funny thing. <laughs> there, there was deep, deep religious segregation in my own tradition, and for many of you, depending on what you grew up in, there are a lot of the, the right-wing evangelical traditions that actually are sectarian in nature where they build up walls to separate themselves. They think that being holy means separating yourselves completely from the world in which you live. And you see this played out with a lot of, and these are, I'm not, I'm not speaking down on any denominations, I'm just, I'm just calling it like it is, but, but that's the heart, that's what actually has driven the Amish to actually be set apart. That's what they're trying to accomplish, is, is this, this different world we're setting up over here. And there are shades of that in a lot of groups. And this is, this is what you see in a lot of Christian traditions. So this is one side of the dilemma. But the problem with this is, that's not Jesus. Jesus was not the one who actually withdrew from the world, but Jesus, his very heart was, I'm going to withdraw from heaven and I'm going to go right into the world because I so love the world. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to brush shoulders with everybody. That's why they called him a friend of sinners. That's why religious people said, this guy's a drunkard and a glutton because he's around those scenes. Jesus went right into the world. So we can't withdraw as believers. So what happens is the other side of the pendulum swings all the way over here. And if we're not going to withdraw, we think, okay, maybe who I am is to assimilate in this world and to become part of it. And my job is just to fit in. Just be normal, man. Why are you so weird? Like be normal. 
And what we do is we assimilate into the culture and we become part of the culture and we adapt the practices of the world in which we live. And this is the mainline mainstream view. And there are a lot of denominations now that basically this is where they've landed, where we, you know what, we're just kind of, we believe what we believe, but you're not going to be able to pick us out of a lineup. It doesn't really affect how we live. We're not separating ourselves. There's no real difference. We just believe in Jesus, this assimilation. And I believe what Peter is getting at is he's, he's trying to actually bring a right understanding to these new Christians who, you think about these new Christians, they were brand new. Like they didn't have grandma's faith passed down to them. This is a first generation of believers. And he sends them this to try to bring them some balance. You know what? You're, you're not supposed to just be part of the culture. You know what? You don't get absorbed into Roman culture or whatever the culture was at the time. And I'm not calling you to withdraw. This is who you are as a believer. He says you're a royal priesthood a chosen nation, God's special possession. Now that is so loaded and it needs its own sermon sometime. But what he's getting at is this, you are a royal priesthood. Now that's a loaded, loaded set of words. A royal priesthood, that means two things, that our job as Christians and our right as Christians is this, that we live and move and walk in the authority of King Jesus. Wherever we go, we are part of another kingdom. We belong to another kingdom. I am not Canadian. I am Christian, primarily. I'm thankful I live in Canada. I'm thankful I have a Canadian passport. But my identity is of the kingdom of God. I am a royal priesthood. What is a priesthood? What is, what is Peter getting at? Well, a priest is one who carries the presence of God. He's one who's not just an ambassador, but he's, 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 he's a nexus. He's a connector to the kingdom of God. So what is he getting at? All this to say, the believer's job is not to withdraw. It is not to assimilate, but it is to live in the world, but to bring God's world into this world. That's what the role of the believer is. So wherever you go, if you are a royal priesthood, if you are, if you are that, you are carrying the authority and the presence of God wherever you go. The job of a believer is this. You are not absorbed or assimilated into culture. On the contrary, you bring the culture of heaven wherever you go. That, that God has actually given the church the authority to change culture to change the atmosphere, to change the reality. That's who we are. It is not Christian to be assimilated, but it is also not Christian to withdraw. I love the words he uses here. He says, you're living stones. Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. Now that picture of living stones, and we're gonna, we're gonna look at that here later on in Code of Kings, but, but basically he says, you're being built together. He said it earlier on. And that as we're built together, we form the dwelling place of God. That God actually dwells within us collectively, not alone, but together. What is he getting at? Essentially this, that as believers, as the church, we are essentially a colony of heaven. That's who we are. Wherever we go, wherever we gather together, we are building the dwelling place of God. That, 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 that God's actual authority and rule and reign has full permission within the space called Brent Ingersoll or within the space called you. And wherever we go, God's dwelling goes. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't that a different concept to think? Like, like I, when you go to work, you are a royal priest. You carry the authority and the presence of God wherever you go. All believers, priest is not some special distinction. I, I wanna tell you that. The Bible says you are all a royal priesthood. 
every one of us, wherever we go. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen nation. He says this, and here's, here's something I think might help, help click it into gear. He says, as foreigners and exiles. Now, what's he talking about when he gets to that point? He says, you're foreigners and exiles. Like, if you want to understand how to navigate this world, think of yourself like a foreigner and an exile. Now, the Greek word in there is this word parapodemoi. And it basically translates as resident aliens. That you are resident aliens in this world. You do not withdraw. You have moved into the neighborhood. But you don't assimilate. There are principles and practices and cultural things from the homeland that you maintain wherever you go. He says, think about yourself like, like, like exiles, like foreigners, like resident aliens. That's who you are. You don't withdraw. You don't assimilate. You're a resident alien. Let, let, let me give you an example. Uh, last year, we were really privileged to be able to help land a, a Syrian family uh, that were refugees. And we helped land them. And we're going to do that again this year for Love Week uh, with another family. Uh, but that was a real privilege as a church to be able to walk out with that one family. Um, and, and one thing I was blessed to be able to do, I went and visited them. I took a couple of my kids and we brought them some dinner. And when I went in, they, they just wanted to shower me with blessing. And they, they, they set up the room real nice and they sat me down and they brought me out. The, the mother brought me out this like strange pudding. Something I'd never seen before. I think it was like a rice-based pudding. And I, anyway, it was, the, the, the heart behind it was so sweet that I tried it and it turned out to be really, really good. But the thing I, I noticed about them was that these are wonderful people. They're living here, but they're very much Syrian. They, they're very much part of where they're from. They, they've brought their culture with them. They have not been assimilated, they have not been absorbed, but they very much have brought their culture and now they're living in Canada. And in, a very, in the same way, this is what Peter is getting at. If you are a believer, this world is not your home. This is not your home. You are a sojourner. You are passing through. You are a foreigner and an exile. You very much live here. You set up shop. You do life. You don't withdraw or run away. Ah, oh, people! You don't do that. We aren't that kind of church. We aren't trying to set up some cult on a hill. We are very much living in this world, but we are aliens and exiles. We are foreigners. We're just passing through. This is why you need to know that there's always going to be a level of discomfort as a believer with your surroundings. And if you're 100% comfortable with how this world is, I suggest to you the heart of God and the mind of God has not taken full root. There's realities in this world that are foreign to us as believers. We believe in God's rule and reign, and where God rules and reign, where we are from, there is no sorrow, there is no death, there is no dying, there are no tears, there is no grief, there's no injustice. And so every time we see one of those things, we're reminded, oh yeah, I'm not home. I'm not home. And we can fully love and enjoy this world, but there's a reality that this world is not our home. Anybody do any traveling? Uh, I like to travel. I get to do it once in a while, and I enjoy that process. I like seeing new places, like meeting new people. God's blessed me with some really awesome experiences. But I found something to be true. No matter how nice the hotel is, no matter how beautiful the place is I'm living, there is no place like home. Am I right? Like, I've slept in far nicer beds than, than, than my wife and I's bed. Like, I, like in hotels, king-size bed with thread counts I can't count. And yet, it's not as good as my bed my bed that's drooping a little bit and like it's a little rough shape and it's not as good. There's no bed like my bed. That's where I'm totally comfortable. 
And, the, and much like that, in your life as a believer, there's never going to be, until Christ returns, you're always going to be a little bit homesick. You should be a little bit homesick. That's why the first Christians, they had this greeting. They would say, Maranatha, to one another. You know what that means? It means, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They were homesick. And I suggest to you that you should feel a little bit homesick when you watch the news. You should feel a little bit homesick when you're at the hospital. You should feel a little bit homesick at the funeral home. But it should make you excited for the day, where home, for the homecoming. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. You see, we are a citizen of a different land, of a different reality. We are not from this world. It looks like, number one, it looks like a new nation if you're taking notes. Number two is this. How do you live in this world? What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like you're a new nation. It also looks like you have a new heart. It looks like a new heart. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, keep this in mind, okay? Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. You've been given this great gift of salvation in Jesus. And then he tags on this, dear friends, therefore, some translations say, therefore, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Now here's where the rubber meets the road for most of us. The dilemma a lot of us face as believers is, isn't necessarily like, who am I? Although that's one of them. But it's also, what do I do? What is right and what is wrong? How do I navigate the moral path? Like, like what's okay for me to do and what's not okay for me to do? Has anybody ever felt the tension in there? It's not as easy as black and white. It's not that simple. It's not neatly divided. And I've found there have been many times where I wasn't quite sure where I landed. And so what happens, this dilemma forms for a lot of people when they follow Jesus. On the right hand, you have this propensity in people where they, they aren't sure where to land, so they err on something that turns into legalism. And legalism essentially is I have to, I have to just, I gotta be good, I gotta be good, I gotta do good, I gotta, I gotta be good. And, and you beat yourself up and you, 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 you measure yourself and you look at your track record and you say, yeah, I was a decent Christian this week or I was a horrible Christian this week. And that's, that's what legalism is. But what happens over here is there are people who strive and they try and they try to be good Christians. And what happens is you hit some walls. And you realize, I can't do that if you follow Jesus long enough. And so I bet you have had a season where you've swung over to this side where it says, well, I can't live the legalism life, legalism life, so I'm over here and I'm just going to give myself license. I'm saved by grace so I can do whatever I want. And so what happens is as believers, we swing back and forth between license and legal, legalism, license and legalism. We go through seasons where we aren't living the way we should and we know it, but we don't really think about it because we think, okay, well, grace just means that I'm covered and I'm going to get in. And so we live in that dilemma and that tension. And I think Peter gives us a key here as to how do we navigate between, you know, does, does it not matter what I do with my life or does it matter so much that I'm obsessive about it and I never feel good enough? And both of those are incorrect. Both of these extremes do not understand what grace is. People who live a legalistic life have basically set up and they have said, your grace is not sufficient for me. 
and that I have got to earn your grace and I have to earn your favor and I have to self-justify in order to be good enough to get into heaven and live a good Christian life. That's what legalism is. Here's the problem with legalism. It does not understand grace. It does not understand that you are saved by grace alone, period. It does not understand that Jesus hated nothing more than self-righteousness and self-justification. He blew up the Pharisees. He just destroyed them wherever he went. And the Pharisees were the people who just followed the letter of the law. So what happens is we swing over here and now here's why this doesn't work. Because it does matter what you do with your life. Your actions do matter. There, is, there are things that are God-honoring and things that are not. Holiness does matter. The, the Bible says, uh, without holiness, you will not see God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It says in Hebrews, be holy for I am holy. There is a call in the Bible, clear call to be different, to be holy, to, to actually have a different moral compass. But now how do you navigate? Is anybody, am I talking to myself? Has anybody felt that tension? live there. I mean, you just, you just live there. So what does it look like to navigate as a believer right from wrong? It looks like a new heart. I love what Peter says. He first says this. He says, abstain. He does say, abstain from sinful desires. This does matter. Sin does matter to God. It does matter what you do. It does matter what you say. It does matter how you talk. These things do matter. Abstain. But now watch the motivation. Look what he says which wage war against your, against your ability to get into heaven? No. Which wage war against how much God likes you? No. Which wage war against your soul? It wages war against your soul. This is what I think he's getting at, that sin is not an external issue for the believer. What you do is not an external issue. For the believer, sin, when we talk about it right from wrong, it's actually an internal heart level issue that God wants to reveal in us. He says it wages war against your soul. So sin is not an issue of, 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 your, of salvation. Sin is an issue of your soul. Do you understand the distinction? It's an issue of how much... Let me say it like this. When God says, be holy... Sin is not an issue of can I get into heaven for someone who's put their faith in Jesus. You get into heaven by Jesus' grace alone. It's not an issue of can I get into heaven. It's an issue of how much of heaven can I get into me. That's what the issue is. That's what he's getting at. He's seeing be different, that, that you're actually waging war against your soul. So sin ultimately is a breakdown in health. That's what he's getting you to understand. Maybe think of it like this. I know we, we've got a, half the regional hospital comes to this church, I'm pretty sure. So you, this, you'll understand this. The letter of the law was given to us to actually show us the breakdowns in our soul. It's like an x-ray. If you had a broken arm and you went into the doctor and they took an x-ray, the x-ray gives them the power to actually look inside of your body and see where the breakdown is, Correct. That is how the word of God works. That is how the law of God has been designed. God gave us the law so that when we hold it up to our lives and we can see, okay, that doesn't line up. Ooh, that looks, that's off. That, that does not look right. That is what the law was there for you. It was there to show you the breakdowns in your soul. God gave you that to show you what was wrong in your heart, but he gives you grace to repair it. Grace actually is the healing agent of God. That's what I think Peter is getting at. The law reveals the heart. Grace repairs it. 
Peter's saying you need to realize if grace is taking root in your life, it is going to call you to abstain from, sin, abstain from sin which degrades your soul. You are going to start to realize that God wants more for me. See, navigating the moral code of Christianity is a heart issue. Anytime you're doing it to, to get God off your back or because I got to feel better about myself, you, you, you're tripping the wires and you do not understand grace. It looks like this. Let me tell you this story. I remember I was uh, 19 or 20 and I just got out of high school. I was on my first year of university. Freedom! I was at St. Thomas University. I grew up in a conservative Christian home for which I am thoroughly thankful. My parents had boundaries in which I bumped into often. And they frustrated me, and I was just like any other kid with some edge and attitude, like, why can't I, and I want to, and you don't want me to, anybody, any parents going through that, or have gone through that? Well, I was that kid, and I've got three, odds are I'll deal with that myself. But I, I, I had these boundaries that my parents put down for me, and I bumped into them often. And I remember when I finally got out to university, and there was a level of freedom removed that they weren't able to tell me what, you know, what time to come in, and I had to do this or that. And I remember I kind of got into going to some parties in that season, and I had this realization. There was this one night I was at a party, and I was sitting on a couch, and the thought occurred to me, I don't know where it came from, and I think it was the wisdom of God, but it, it occurred to me that, you know what? No one in this room loves me like my parents do. No one here cares about my success like my parents do. No one here really cares what happens to me in five or ten years like my parents do. And nobody here has invested and given to me like my parents have. And something shifted in my mind where the law of my parents moved down to love. Where I had this realization where if they were trying to guide me, it was because they love me. And now I can trust that. And I got up and I left that party and that was the last like, party like that that I've ever gone to. Something shifted. And this is, what it, this is what holiness looks like, church. And I don't know what tradition you grew up in, but this is what it looks like. It's the realization that no one has loved me like he has. No one knows me like he knows me. No one knows life like he knows life. No one cares about my future like he cares about my future. So if he's asking me to abstain from this, it's because he loves me. This is why Peter led with this. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Therefore, abstain. We get that backwards, don't we? We think, oh, I got to abstain so I can receive mercy. No, you abstain because you've received mercy. Maybe I say it like this. You don't live the life of holiness. You don't live for grace. You live from grace. You don't live to get more grace. You live because you've gotten grace. We don't live and work for grace. We live from grace. Being a Christian is realizing God loves me just the way I am and he loves me way too much to let me stay that way. He says, I'm going to wrap up here. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now watch this last little dilemma here. So one, it looks like a new nation. It looks like a new heart. And here's the third one. He says, though they accuse you. So live, he says, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Now pagans is just a word they would have used for people 
uh, pro tip, don't go to work this week and say, greetings, pagans. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> it says, live such a good life among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, so, okay, accusation, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now, here's another tension, and here's the last one I want to look at, and this has to do with, okay, which way do we go in this world? What is the path that I take? Because, okay, there are things that you'll do. He says, live life in such a way, live such a good life that, that people will accuse you. What? Hold your beliefs and walk in faith in such a way that though they accuse you, he's saying there will be accusation for following Jesus, that you will not always fit in. But then he says, but also on the day God visits, they will glorify God, that there will be things that they accept about you and things that they embrace about you. And that it's both of these realities. And, and think about the first Christians that Peter was writing to. Now, that we've, we've actually held a lot of these values to this day, but the first church, now they did not fit on the right or the left. Like in, in mainstream culture, you think about it. On the one hand, over here, the first Christians, they were, they were pro-women. The, the, the church was actually one of the first groups of people that with any kind of power and influence to actually stand up and say, women have the same rights as men. So they were pro-women. They were anti-violence, anti-military in those days. They, they were uh, radically for the poor. And the first Christians were one of the first groups ever that were just out there in, in favor of racial reconciliation. There were people who were tearing down walls and saying everyone's created in God's image. We're, we're, we're forming a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, if you think of those kind of on a political level, those are pretty left ideas, aren't they? Those are fairly liberal. Like, I mean, Trudeau's all over that. But then at the same time, these Christians also, now don't think you've got them locked in on the liberal path. You swing it back this way, and Peter was writing to a group of people who, who they were, I mean, they were committed to this fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father but through me. So that basically says to everybody else, your religion is wrong. Though they accuse you. Uh, they were people who were committed to a certain idea of what sexual purity looked like. They believed in sex before marriage as sin. They believed that, that sex was only reserved for monogamous marriage relationships. The, these people were actually some of the first to be pro-life. They were anti-infanticide. That was a thing at the time where people, they had the choice. They could just, a woman didn't just have the right to choose to abort. They had the right to actually give birth and leave the baby wherever they want if they didn't want it. And these Christians were the first people to actually stand up and say that's wrong and start adopting these babies. And so on the, on the other hand, these believers were very right-wing, weren't they? And here's what Peter's getting at. He's, this, is, this is the heart of this message. He says, you're just not going to fit. In this world, you're, you're, they're not going to be able to peg you down the right side or the left side. You're not a liberal. You're not a conservative. You don't hold this party line or that party line. You're not voting for Trump and you're not voting for Hillary. You're not, like not going to fit perfectly is what he's saying. He's saying there is a narrow way you're going to walk. And you know what? You're going to bump up against accusation by times and you're going to bump up against acceptance. There will be times where people in your life say, wow, I love how generous you are. We've seen that with Love Week as a church. When we do that, the, the, the world around us loves that. Who doesn't love when people give away money and time 
Of course they accept that. But we've also had people say things about us. I mean, we're, we're coming into cult-like status to some people. What do you mean you believe that about marriage? What do you mean that Jesus is the only way? Those guys are crazy. We, we've had that as well. And here's the point. There is a path that we walk that is not this way. It is not that way. It is the narrow way. And this is the point of this whole code. And it is this. Be prepared to not fully fit in this world. As a believer, be prepared to not fully fit in. Be prepared to be different. Be prepared to know that, that if, I'm, if I'm jiving, just, if everybody is just accepting me, I'm probably not actually walking the narrow path. One, one Christian leader I love, he, he leads a very large church, and he says, listen, if people aren't calling your church a cult at some level, you're not doing anything. There, 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 there will be accusation. There will be rejection, but at the same time, you will be a blessing to this world. There will be acceptance. He says, live in such a way that though they accuse you, they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father. Jesus said it like this. Verse 13 in Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to, and don't lose sight of this, the gateway to life is narrow. And the road is difficult and the only the few ever find it. We're decidedly different. We're decidedly different. We make a daily decision to walk the narrow path. We don't assimilate to culture. We don't withdraw. We don't live by the letter of the law and we don't think lightly about sin. We walk the narrow path in following Jesus. Jesus once said, whoever will come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever, whoever would lose his life will find it. Whoever would try to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. We believe that life is found on the narrow path. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite you to participate in communion. And most weeks, most weeks, the, the tone of our preaching, we do this on purpose. I just want to, I want to encourage you and I want to send you out. Uh, this, this message today is kind of one of those like, this is, just, this is real. I don't want to send you out with some false pretense about what following Jesus is. There are days where following Jesus is hard. There are days where the narrow path feels extra narrow. There are days where you are bumping up against the left and the right. There are days where it feels like I do not fit in this world. But our conviction is we hang on to our belief and we walk the narrow path because we believe that is the only path that brings life. Peter the apostle, the guy who wrote this. I mean, this, this, I love that it's him who wrote this text because here's a guy who like, I mean, his, his life was like left and right and up and down. If you read his story, it's, it's wild. The guy was all over the place. And the last exchange he has with Jesus, he's asking Jesus about, well, okay, what's my life gonna look like? And he's like, what about John? And what about these guys? And Jesus says, what's it to you? You follow me. It's the last thing he ever heard from Jesus. You follow me. And that's the call. We follow after Jesus. We carry our own cross. 
like the master did for us. This is how Peter ends his little text. I'm gonna read this and I'm gonna open up communion and we're gonna end with that. He says this at the end, in chapter two in verse 20, he says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, they rejected him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls.